It's 2 a.m. Welcome back to the 2 a.m. Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, I am actually staying up late to record this episode, and so my tagline is actually correct for once. I want to start this episode with a confession, which is that originally I was going to talk only about the second Mrs. Astor because that book wins the award hands down for the most boring historical fiction book I think I have ever read. So originally, I was just going to rant about that one book for 30 minutes or an hour or however long it took me to get it out of my system. But then I realized that my rant would be a lot more effective if I could do a comparing contrast with some historical fiction books that I actually enjoyed in order to highlight why exactly I didn't like the second Mrs. Astor. So this episode is going to be formatted a bit differently than my usual three books and a theme episodes are just because this episode is mostly an excuse for me to vent about my sheer disappointment in the second Mrs. Astor, which I was really, really, really looking forward to. And then my excitement fizzled faster than an opened can of soda once I actually started reading it. But before I get into all of that, I am going to give my usual spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. Major spoilers ahead for the second Mrs. Astor. There are also spoilers ahead for the Diamond Eye and the Christie Affair, although the spoilers for those books are going to be relatively minor. No promises, so you'll have to proceed at your own risk, but if I'm remembering correctly, I don't really spoil the other two books very much. Like I said, I am going to be mostly focusing on the second Mrs. Astor, and I'll essentially be using the other two books as a guide to show where that book went wrong. Alright, so let's talk about historical fiction, and in particular, the type of historical fiction where the author tries to recreate the life of a real person. So it's not a secret that I love historical fiction, and I know it's not a secret, but I do want to emphasize that it is one of my favorite genres. It always has been, and it probably always will be. But what I haven't talked about on here before is that I also love biographies. I love really thick, insanely detailed biographies, especially of people I've never heard of before. Because when you're reading a biography of a person who's famous or you've heard of them, then you kind of are already expecting what's going to happen. But when it's a person you have no idea about, it's just so exciting. It's like fiction on steroids to me personally. For example, last year I picked up The Talented Miss Highsmith 
which was an incredibly detailed biography of an author I had never heard of before picking up the book, Patricia Highsmith. It was definitely a really interesting read, and I guess I would recommend it, although I will say if you like reading about likable people, then it's definitely not the book for you. But if you're just interested, like I am, in reading about real people in general, then I would definitely recommend it. It's a really good biography. So, given that I love historical fiction and biographies, it's probably not surprising that I love historical fiction that recreates the lives of real people. Fiction can help fill in the missing parts of real people's lives, and it can give those real people motivations and desires that biographies often can't because for the vast majority of people, we know very little about their inner lives. Most biographies try to make educated guesses about how their subjects thought and felt but even those educated guesses do have to be backed up by some amount of evidence because by their nature, biographies are nonfiction. You need sources, you need cold, hard facts. But in my opinion, that's what makes historical fiction so powerful. Authors can turn an already fascinating person's life into a compelling story. Given that most of my favorite books tend to center around women and women's experiences, it shouldn't be a surprise that most of the historical fiction I pick up centers around women as well. So, putting all of this together, when I came across The Second Mrs. Astor by Shana Abe, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, apologies if I'm not, I came across this book on Libby and I read the description, and you can probably imagine that I was hooked. Essentially, this book, which is a recent release, by the way, it came out in 2021. I feel like maybe I haven't been clarifying this for all of the books in my most recent episodes, so I'll try to do better in the future. But anyway, this book is based on the life of a real woman, the second wife of John Jacob Astor IV. I'll be saying that a lot throughout this episode, and every time I say that name, I just have so much fun. Anyway, at the time, he was one of the richest men in the world. They met when she was 17, they got married when she was 18, and their courtship and marriage were highly publicized by the press. The author at the very end of the book mentions that she kind of drew an analogy between the highly publicized nature of their relationship with the highly publicized nature of Princess Diana of Wales' relationship, and I do think that's fair after looking into the historical background a little bit myself. Anyway, after their marriage, they ended up sailing on the maiden voyage of the Titanic, and I think we all know how that story goes. John Jacob Astor IV died on the Titanic, but his wife, Madeline, survived, and after his death, she actually went on to marry again, twice, 
And just in general, she still had a pretty interesting life ahead of her, although she didn't live all that long. She died when she was in her 40s. So all in all, it's an absolutely fascinating story, and I was so excited to read this book. It has, on the surface at least, pretty much every element that can possibly draw me into a book. It has romance, it's character driven, it has the literal Titanic. It promised to explore all kinds of interesting issues and themes. I was so sure that I was going to love this book. So maybe you can imagine my disappointment when I started reading this book and I realized about five chapters, ten chapters in that I was so bored. And keep in mind, this book is 352 physical book pages and since I was reading it on Libby on my phone, to me, I had like 600, 700 pages to get through. I will be going into more detail about what exactly made this book so boring, but before I do that, I am going to talk about two other historical fiction books that are kind of similar to the second Mrs. Astor, but which executed this idea of bringing real women to life so much better. And in discussing these other two books, we're going to extract the specific elements that made these other books work, and then we're going to discuss why these elements are lacking when it comes to the second Mrs. Astor. So let's start with The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn. Now, I'm going to come right out and say it, but this is the best historical fiction book that I have read this year so far. It's only April, so still plenty of time left to read historical fiction books, but so far, it's the best one I've read this year. It's not surprising, obviously, given that Kate Quinn is a well-known historical fiction author, and this kind of book is the kind of book that she does very well. Last year, I read her book, The Alice Network, and I really enjoyed it, so I definitely went into this book knowing that I would probably enjoy it. The Diamond Eye is a newish release. It came out in late 2022, and my ebook that I read was literally created in March of 2023, so I'm going to count it as close to a new release, or maybe as close to a new release as you're going to get right now. I know that there are books coming out this year, like 2023, but I personally haven't seen any in Libby yet, so I'm guessing that for most people, new release still means late 2022. Anyway, semantics aside, let's get into this book. Let's get into The Diamond Eye. The premise of this book is fairly simple. It's about the wartime experiences of a Soviet female sniper who was so good at killing Nazis that her nickname was Lady 
death, which is pretty metal. Her actual name was Ludmila Pavlichenko, and I hope that I am pronouncing that correctly. She was indeed a real person, although there is controversy surrounding her achievements and the actual events of her life, given that she was heavily used for propaganda purposes by the Soviet government, both during the war and afterwards. And I think that that context definitely makes her life ripe for this kind of fictional exploration. A lot of her life is well documented. She actually wrote an autobiography slash memoir, but there's still a lot of room to decide for yourself what's real versus what's just PR, as well as how this woman actually felt about things and what kind of person she actually was. And Kate Quinn does talk about this a bit in the afterword for the book where she discusses how she was kind of able to sift through the available materials and what kind of standards she applied to decide for herself like what she thought was real versus what she thought was just propaganda. But anyway, I think that in a lot of ways, it's a dream situation for a talented historical fiction author, which I think most people would agree that Kate Quinn definitely is. This book, The Diamond Eye, is a really powerful, compelling, emotional book that has some really devastating war scenes, it has some deep emotional connections, some interesting historical tidbits slash like scenes that I was either unfamiliar with or not deeply familiar with. I think that in general the Soviet experience during World War II isn't a subject that many American historical fiction authors have covered for obvious reasons, but I think that there is definitely some interesting ground to cover there, although maybe not in the current political climate, let's let's put it that way. And actually, Kate Quinn does touch on that in her afterword as well. I will say, though, that I do have some slight criticisms both in regard to the story structure and also with regard to some of the themes slash character arcs. I don't want to go too deep into my criticisms because I'm not really here to do that, but, but I do want to go over my thoughts briefly and I'll also be linking a Substack post I wrote in the description that goes into a bit more detail regarding some of my thoughts. Okay, so story-wise, the framing device, or maybe framing device isn't really the right way to put it. It's kind of a framing device, but I think maybe the more accurate way to describe this book is that there are essentially two storylines going on in parallel. There's Mila's, Mila's, I'm going to pronounce her name Mila, but um, yeah, there's Mila's war story and the trip that she takes to DC 
after her time at the front, where she's part of a delegation that's trying to convince the U.S. to help the Soviet Union against the Nazis. So in this U.S. storyline, there's an FDR assassination attempt going on. It's not a spoiler, surprisingly. It's literally like the first chapter or something like that. And there's also a build-up to a character arc where Mila has a final confrontation with her abusive ex-husband. That was a spoiler. Okay, so here is my problem with this storyline. The assassination plotline in and of itself is fine. I think I honestly would have maybe preferred it to be even more fleshed out and tense. As it stands, it feels a bit like filler for most of the book because nothing really happens. Like there's foreshadowing and then there's, you know, tension and suspense building up, but like nothing really happens. And then in the final few chapters, the tension finally starts ramping up. We finally start getting some actual action, but the actual assassination attempt itself isn't particularly exciting. And there's just never a point in the story where I feel like it's an actual threat. Obviously, part of that is me just knowing that FDR did not die in an assassination attempt, but I still think it could have been more exciting if it had been a closer call. My problem is that this assassination plotline combined with the climax involving the abusive ex just ties everything off in this neat little bow that feels inauthentically cathartic. Because here's the thing, right? Like, unfortunately, that's just not how life tends to work. We don't generally get symbolically meaningful closure for relationships that have hurt us. And in particular, we don't get that kind of closure by performing heroic deeds that save the fate of the war and of the world, you know? It just doesn't feel real, and obviously it isn't. Like, none of this happened in real life as far as we know. And then when you pair this storyline that doesn't ring quite right, when you pair it with the far more emotional and intimate and devastating wartime storyline that does ring true because it actually happened, it just, it's just a weird juxtaposition as a reader. And I've talked on here before about how I like books based on a true story better than I like movies based on a true story because books tend to be less sensationalized and they feel more real than their visual media counterparts. But this U.S. assassination attempt storyline rubbed me in the wrong way that movies based on a true story tend to do just by stretching the truth and playing with it in ways that felt like the author thinks that maybe all of these things that this real person experienced and felt weren't exciting enough for a fictional story, and so they felt compelled to add on all of this very 
dramatic, almost melodramatic padding. And I'm not saying that this is actually how the author felt. I'm saying that that's how I experienced it as a reader. So that's what I have to say about the story structure and what I didn't like about it. Overall, I think this book could have been stronger plot-wise if A, the U.S. storyline had been cut entirely, or B, the U.S. storyline had focused entirely on the suspenseful assassination plot and had just gone fully in on that aspect. Or C, the U.S. storyline had been entirely an inward emotional journey of healing given everything that Mila Mila had already been through by that point. And then as far as themes slash character arcs, I've already touched on the abusive ex-husband thing and why I don't really like that he's not only a recurring character, but also the ultimate villain, essentially, of the story. I mean, yes, I hate him. I hate him so much. He's gross and domineering and manipulative, and he got Mila pregnant at 15, which made me want to vomit. But, but, I have two problems, essentially, with the major role that he plays in this story. One problem is that I don't like that it's not historically accurate. Historically, we have no record showing that this guy ever re-entered her life after their divorce. And by the way, for some reason in the Diamond Eye, they don't get divorced, like at all. But in real life, like they apparently got divorced pretty much right away. So I'm not, I'm not really sure what's up with that, to be honest. But anyway, the point is, and I'll get more into this when we talk about the Christie affair, but the point here is my issue is not really with the historical accuracy in and of itself because this is fiction and I recognize that, but I take issues with historical inaccuracy when it's being done solely for the purposes of the story that the author wants to tell rather than the author telling the story that I'm here to read. I came into the Diamond Eye without any prior knowledge of the story of this sniper, and even though I know that this book is fiction, I'm more here to read an imaginative reconstruction of a real person's life, and I'm not really here to read what essentially boils down to real person fan fiction. And then the other problem, as I mentioned before, is that the ex-husband confrontation is treated like some kind of massive emotional release, a symbol for the death of the past so that Mila can move forward. But personally, I don't like this because A, Again, it feels very much like the kind of clean ending that real life just doesn't provide and 
not the kind of ending that I think the real-life Ludmilla actually received if you read her Wikipedia article. And also, B, paired with the symbolic rebirth of Mila's romance with her third husband, it just feels like a complete cleansing of everything that Mila has gone through. And I don't like this because... Again, if you read her Wikipedia page, the real-life Ludmilla did not experience this kind of phoenix rising from the ashes moment. She struggled her entire life with her wartime experiences, and that trauma may even have contributed to her early death. So again, this feels like the narrative thinks that the real-life events aren't dramatic enough or satisfying enough to make a good story. And so we get all of these arcs and themes that feel like a betrayal of the kind of story we thought we were reading. And it's especially annoying to me because Kate Quinn does know how to write war veterans. Like, for example, I mentioned earlier that I read The Alice Network, but Evelyn Gardner in that story is just such a good depiction of a war veteran. But because Mila is the protagonist of a women's fiction novel, she doesn't get the dignity of a realistic ending. Like, she has to get this neat ending with all of the emotional threads satisfyingly tied off and, you know, having the power of love solve all her trauma. And I just, I don't like that. That got a little bit more ranty than I anticipated, so I do want to clarify that, you know, I did love this book, and I do still think that it's the best historical fiction book that I've read this year, and I'm going to prove it by pivoting to what I liked about it. As always, I do want to acknowledge that I tend to go pretty hard on books that I like because I see so much potential in them. It doesn't, my criticisms don't mean that I hate these books. It's the opposite. It's just that I'm nitpicky and I'm overly critical and I have too many opinions for my own good, but I, I assure you that I did enjoy The Diamond Eye, and just because I criticize a book doesn't mean that I don't like it. Okay, so what I love about The Diamond Eye and Kate Quinn's work in general is her ability to create characters that are so real, and not only real in the sense that they're recognizable people, but also real in the sense that they're grounded to the particular time and place that she's depicting. So many historical fiction characters are basically just modern day characters walking around in historical costumes around historical settings that are about as deep as Epcot. And I'm not trying to be mean about Epcot because I love Disney World too, but you do have to admit that Epcot is a 
about the aesthetics and the food and, you know, not trying to do anything deep or meaningful. And that's fine. But anyway, those kinds of shallow historical fiction characters drive me absolutely bonkers. Like, I get that they're more sanitized and palatable for a modern day audience, but to me, those aren't the kind of stories that I'm here to read about. I am here for uncomfortable conversations about obsolete worldviews and beliefs that are alien from my own, and just in general, I'm here for books that help me understand viscerally what the world used to be like. And that includes not just what people ate or how they traveled, but also how they interacted and thought and communicated. And Kate Quinn has a real talent for creating such good historical fiction characters. And in particular, what she does really, really well is incorporating their mindsets and worldviews into their thoughts and dialogue and motivations. Her characters are always so well done and compelling and such a treat to read about. Something else that Kate Quinn is also really good at is she's really good at keeping you turning pages. I did say that nothing really happened in the U.S. storyline, but she did a really great job of making me believe that something was going to happen right up until it actually did. So my complaints are more about the experience in hindsight rather than what the experience felt like in the moment. And while suspense is what drives the U.S. storyline and it's well done, I honestly found the intrigue during the wartime storyline to be even more engaging. And you would think that I should switch the two adjectives, right? Like, you would think that the wartime storyline would be suspenseful and the U.S. storyline would be more intriguing, but that's really not how I felt. The wartime storyline is tense, obviously, but even more so, I found the descriptions of life as a Soviet soldier and Mila's sniper techniques and her dynamic relationships with the other soldiers to be the most interesting elements. And I would say that those elements are definitely more intriguing than suspenseful. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up the discussion of The Diamond Eye by saying that it's a very compelling historical fiction book about a subject I didn't really know much about, so I was glad that I read it, even though I had to go back and fact check things after I read it to see what was real and what wasn't, and that was slightly annoying, but still, it was a great book, definitely one that had a lot of care and effort put into it, and it had some really memorable characters. It was also definitely a staying up until 2am book, so congrats to the Diamond Eye for winning that very prestigious award. So in this discussion of the Diamond Eye, we've established two key ingredients to good historical fiction. 
One is believable, grounded characters. And also, number two is intrigue slash suspense based on either real events or speculative events that could have surrounded the real events. Let's turn to the second Mrs. Astor and examine why this book fails when it comes to both of those factors. So first we have the characters. Our protagonist is Madeline and then we have Madeline's family and also her love interest John Jacob Astor IV and his son Vincent. There are some other characters as well, but those are the main players in this story. None of these characters are interesting or likable or complex in any way, and for a character-driven story, that's a huge problem. I say character-driven and it really wasn't. It often felt more like the characters were getting carried along by the momentum of their predetermined events. But at the same time, it's not like I can say this book had much of a plot either, so I guess we're going with character-driven. So Madeline is our protagonist, this real woman that this fictional book is trying to recreate. And I do want to acknowledge here really quickly that I am aware there isn't much information about Madeline Force as a person. And since she wasn't, you know, a Soviet sniper or something similarly exciting, it's probably hard to create a story around her. But that's kind of the point of historical fiction or fiction in general, right? It's up to the author to make the characters compelling and real and exciting. And so when you have a relatively blank slate like Madeline, I think it's a great opportunity to create for her a complex and detailed and most importantly, believable inner world. But that's not what this author chose to do. Madeline seems to have no personality or thoughts or likes or dislikes or friendships. All she really has going for her is she has a love interest, John Jacob Astor IV, and that's pretty much it. For example, what are her personality traits? I guess you could call her strong or maybe stubborn because there's a lot that she has to endure from the press and from the upper crust society that rejects her. But being strong, it, it can't be your entire personality Unless you're, you know, one of those grizzled old men in action-adventure movies. You know, the kind of character that gets played by Harrison Ford or Clint Eastwood. But those characters aren't very interesting anyway, and they're a 
big reason why I don't usually watch action-adventure movies, because the characters are boring. Madeline isn't an interesting conversationalist. She's not like an upbeat person. She's not even like a really depressed person. She doesn't seem to be particularly well-read or intelligent. She doesn't have a particularly kind or empathetic personality. She's not mean, but I would say that she's pretty self-centered. Overall, not the kind of person that I would enjoy being friends with, and she doesn't need to be, but you know what I mean? Like, she's just boring. Speaking of personality, I mean, what are her hobbies? Does she like to paint? Does she like to draw? There's one scene where she plays the piano, but she, it's very clear that it's not something she does often or that she really enjoys doing. There's also a play that she participates in at the beginning of the story. But after that, she seems to have no interest anymore in plays or acting. And, you know, what books does she like? This question was actually something I fixated on more than is maybe reasonable, but I think in a way it does make sense to think about this question because this was a time period when books were basically the only form of readily available entertainment and people were really into books. So telling us what Madeline likes to read could have given us some insight into who she is and how she thinks. But even if she herself isn't interesting, maybe she could have at least had interesting relationships with the people around her. But unfortunately, she really, really doesn't. Her mother is bossy and controlling. So how does Madeline feel about that? We don't know. Madeline and her sister have this one-sided rivalry where Madeline feels kind of jealous of her sister, but is that all there is to their relationship? We don't know. Madeline, the real Madeline, would go on later in life to marry a childhood friend. Well, where is he in this story? Why does Madeline have no relationships that aren't entirely superficial? How does it make her feel that she has no real friends? Does she like having no friends? We don't know. And then obviously we have the main romance between Madeline and John Jacob Astor IV. And it is the least romantic thing I have read maybe in my entire life. First, I do just have to say that a romance between a 17-year-old and a 47-year-old is predatory and gross any way you look at it. But it's particularly predatory when the 47-year-old man in question is one of the richest men in the world, and the 17-year-old is this naive young woman from an upper-middle-class background. And 
the problem I have is that the narrative presents this relationship to us as this once-in-a-lifetime love rather than what it actually is, which is an old rich guy preying on a very young and sheltered woman. It's a literal plot point in this book that they're waiting for Madeline to turn 18 before they get married. And I'm supposed to find this romantic? That's not romance. That's a true crime case waiting to happen. And my issue is not that Madeline sees this as romance, right? We're in her point of view, so it makes sense that that's how she views her dazzling relationship with this incredibly powerful older man. The problem that I have is that this book, the narrative itself, never once challenges this idea that Madeline has. There were so many points throughout the book where John Jacob Astor IV was being controlling or just inconsiderate of her feelings or Madeline was suppressing some part of herself to please him. And every time I thought we were building up to a character arc where John Jacob Astor IV dies, he dies on the Titanic, and Madeline has to process that she misses him, but also at the same time, she has to come to terms with the fact that their relationship was not good and it was not healthy. But that's not what happens the entire time. All she does is go on and on and on about how John Jacob Astor IV was the love of her life and she'll never get over him and it was the most epic romance in the history of romance. And at some point, that's just sad. It's sad that this is being written and marketed as romance in 2021. Keep in mind, this is a recent release. And it's sad that if the author was going to make this a romance, they couldn't have at least made it a believable romance. Madeline and John Jacob Astor IV have no chemistry whatsoever. And also, he basically stalks her throughout the beginning of the story, so that's fun. Also, the biggest issue as far as what the narrative has to say about this relationship is that the story ends with John Jacob Astor IV dying. The real Madeline went on to have a very full, interesting life after his death, but by ending the book with Madeline wallowing in her grief, it feels like the narrative is feeding into this idea that she's nobody without her husband, and that's not true, and I hate it so much. Overall, none of the relationships in this book were developed or meaningful or interesting. There were a couple of characters that Madeline had conflict with, but the conflicts never went anywhere and they didn't mean anything. The vibe I got was the conflicts only existed because the author was like, oh, hey, 
I need conflict, you know, like novels need conflict, but they thought it was enough to just put the conflicts in and then never actually follow through. So anyway, that's Madeline. All of the other characters are extremely flat. They maybe get one or two personality traits each and that's it. John Jacob Astor IV is rich and hot and controlling, and that's pretty much it. Madeline keeps saying that he's charismatic, but I don't buy it. Like, I don't feel it. Like, you know, show, don't tell. You can keep telling me he's charismatic all you want, but that's not going to make me believe you. Anyway, Madeline's sister is pretty and she's nice and that's it. Madeline's mother is ambitious and controlling, and that's it. Madeline's dad just kind of exists. You get the idea. Now, moving on to the use of real-life events to create intrigue slash suspense slash an actual story... For a character-driven story, as this was intended to be, you would imagine that the author would use the relationships between the characters to build tension and move the story along. Even a fairly action-oriented story like The Diamond Eye, even that story, the majority of the time, it was about the characters and their motivations and their feelings and their memories. Obviously, as we know, the characters and their relationships were not fleshed out in this book, The Second Mrs. Astor, so maybe the author could have done what The Diamond Eye did with the U.S. assassination storyline. That storyline obviously started with the question, what if? What if there was an assassination attempt on FDR during the Soviet delegation's visit? And obviously, as the book mentions, this was in part inspired by actual assassination attempts on FDR. I keep saying FDR, I should clarify, I mean Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the U.S. president during the Great Depression and during most of World War II. Anyway, I think that a lot of good historical fiction starts with this question, what if? What would happen if you played around in the gray areas of history, the parts that we have no real knowledge about? And I think that there are a lot of what-if questions that you can ask about the Astors, and in particular about Madeline herself. But the book isn't interested in asking those questions or exploring those questions. It's not interested in coming up with plot lines to fill in the dead spaces of the narrative at all. And here's what I mean by dead spaces. There's a lot of time, a lot of pages leading up to the courtship. And then there's a lot of pages leading up to the wedding itself. And then there's a lot of pages leading up to the Titanic. And then there's still more pages leading up to the sinking of the Titanic. And in all of those empty spaces, nothing happens. There's only 
boring characters who don't interact with each other in interesting or meaningful ways and fine okay fine I hate those kinds of stories but it could work it could work if you came up with some kind of interesting plot some cool events to fill in those spaces maybe you could have a secret assassination plot a lot of prominent men in that time period were getting killed off. Maybe you could have some kind of business plot line involving the Aster business empire. There could definitely be something interesting there. I mean, John Jacob Astor IV founded the Astoria Hotel, which is now the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. So, you know, the hotel business, I bet that was interesting. Or, for example, in the past, I've personally been interested in Wall Street and the shenanigans that happened on Wall Street during the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Two books that I've personally read in this area are The Scarlet Woman of Wall Street and Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. I read both books years ago, so I'm not saying that I recommend those specific books, but the subject matter in and of itself was so interesting and there was just a lot of terrible things um, happening on Wall Street at the time. But anyway, my point is, even if you don't want to do a character-focused book, there's still a lot of interesting angles that you could pick to ask, what if? But the author obviously did none of those things, so as a result, the pacing of this book is absolutely glacial. You're just waiting for certain things to happen. The proposal, the marriage, the Titanic, the pregnancy... And the journey from point to point is just excruciating. It really, really doesn't help that there is this suffocating languor of luxury hanging over every single chapter. Because the majority of this book, almost every single scene, takes place in the very formal, very restricted social settings of this time period. There are very few parts in this book where we're getting genuine emotion that isn't wrapped up in manners or just suppressed entirely. Basically, we're moving from scene to scene of garden parties and dinner parties and classical music concerts and restaurants and it's all just so languid and unhurried and lazy because why would it be anything else these people have no worries they apparently have very little to do they have all the money in the world and all they seem to do is sit around and suffocate under the scrutiny of everybody else and it's so boring and nothing ever happens. Okay, so we've talked about the characters in the second Mrs. Astor. They're flat at best and just dull at worst. We've also talked about the general storyline and pacing. 
The storyline is a series of events that you already know are going to happen and that take forever to get to, and the pacing drags its feet every step of the way. But what we haven't talked about yet is how shallow this entire book is. And in order to illustrate what I mean, I'm going to bring up the final book we'll be talking about today, which is The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. I'm sorry, I know I'm butchering that. This is a recent release. It came out in 2022. And like with all of the other books we're talking about today, I was really excited to read this book. I think in general, historical fiction books are the books that I get most hyped for because they tend to exist at the intersection of all of the things I love about books. For this book, The Christie Affair, I was really intrigued by the premise in particular. It centers around the real-life disappearance of pioneering mystery author Agatha Christie and I was really interested in seeing what kind of speculative story a historical fiction book could come up with to explain this real-life mystery. The premise of this book is that we're following Agatha Christie's husband's mistress, Nan, who becomes entangled in Agatha Christie's disappearance. There's a past storyline as well where we learn about Nan's life before becoming involved with the Christie's. I wanted to love this book. I wanted to love it so much. But overall, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Especially when the end started to come in sight, we had passed the halfway point, you know. By that point, I knew where the book was headed, I knew how it would end, and by that point, I just wanted the book to be over. I had checked out of the reading experience. If I were the type of person to not finish books, I probably wouldn't have finished this one, but I am a perfectionist, I am a completionist, and I need to finish things. So, you know, it wasn't that this book was bad or anything. It was more so that it just ended up feeling kind of mediocre. And I guess that I'm becoming less patient with mediocre books because there's just so many good books that I want to get around to reading. And I want to say that there are three main reasons why this book didn't really work for me overall. The first issue was that this book had so many things going on. There were so, so, so many elements happening in this book because of the kind of story that the author was trying to tell. There was romance, there were mysteries, including a murder mystery, there was trauma, there was so much commentary on true crime and institutional violence and misogyny and patriarchy and religion 
and the choices that women have to make sometimes and so many other things. And I just think that one, stories in general are more powerful when you pick a couple of plot lines slash through lines to focus on and then you explore them in depth. And also, two, you can make this type of story work and it could be very interesting, but I don't think this specific story was able to handle all of these elements in a balanced way. The second issue is historical inaccuracies. And I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but I know that this is fiction. I don't need it to necessarily follow the facts. I don't even really care that they completely changed the mistress's name and made up a whole different life story for her. It did give me whiplash when I was visiting the various relevant Wikipedia pages, but I guess I can kind of think of it as an alternate universe slash parallel universe kind of situation. It's almost, but not quite right, and that's fine. Here's what's actually bothering me about this complete overhaul of the historical facts. What bothers me is that the story that's constructed by the author in place of what we know of the truth doesn't feel real because obviously it isn't real. But if you're going to construct this type of alternate reality, I think it should probably feel real to some extent. And I want to clarify here that the past storyline, Nan's past, That does feel very real because it is based on the experiences of real women as the author discusses in the afterword. And that part of the story was definitely the most interesting and it's definitely going to be the part that I remember the most moving forward. What doesn't feel real is the present day storyline, Agatha Christie's disappearance, the whole reason I'm reading the book. So many threads and character arcs and characters and storylines converge and tie together in ways that feel like a story, like fiction. There are so many coincidences, so many neatly tied off plot threads, so many convenient explanations, and that's what bothers me. I do feel like maybe this was intentional, and this leads me into the third issue, which is the way that this story was told. The way in which this story is told is so unusual in modern day fiction, but especially in modern day historical fiction. Historical fiction, like romance and other popular genres, tends to stick fairly closely to conventional storytelling styles because these genres want to reach the widest audience possible. Which is why I do like it when authors try out new things and get a little experimental because I think that's great. However, 
I do not like the way in which this particular story got unconventional, and here's why. This story is told from the first-person perspective of Nan, which is not a particularly unusual choice. It's probably the expected choice in this particular situation. What is unusual is that there are chapters and scenes in which Nan is not present, but she's still the narrator. She's still the one telling us what's going on. Furthermore, she's also an omniscient narrator, so she knows how everyone feels, what everyone thinks, and so on. And I don't like this for two reasons. The first reason is probably obvious. It's a really awkward and difficult way to tell a story. I don't mind an omniscient narrator. I talked about Little Fires Everywhere on here before, and I really loved the decision in that book to use an omniscient narrator because it made sense for the kind of book that it was. The point of view choice was intrinsically tied to what the book was trying to say, the themes it was exploring, etc. However, in the case of the Christie affair, the point of view choice just doesn't work. There are certain points where it's just so jarring to read that it literally takes you out of the reading experience. Like, for example, you'll have a scene where two characters are talking, Nan is nowhere in sight, you forget that she's the one narrating, and then, for example, one of the characters will say something and Nan will say, he was talking about me. And it's awkward, but the weird part is, it's awkward for no reason. I don't think that this story is particularly improved by having all these scenes that don't have Nan in them. Those scenes don't really say anything or do anything beyond filling us in on things we could have guessed or just don't care about. And I honestly think that a tighter focus would have served this story a lot better. And beyond the effectiveness of this point of view choice, beyond how well this point of view choice is pulled off, there's something off about this narration. There are a lot of things that Nan knows but isn't telling us, specifically in regard to the two mysteries at the center of the plot. And when those secrets are finally revealed, you end up feeling really manipulated. Also, there are indications that she's an unreliable narrator and... My question for all of this is just, but why? Why do we need this omniscient, manipulative, unreliable narrator? Like, what's the point? And I'm going to bring up Little Fires Everywhere again just to say the point of view choice in that book has a point. It enhances the reading experience. In The Christie Affair, the point of view choice just leaves me feeling confused and manipulated, 
what was actually real. If it wasn't real, then I guess that explains why the entire Agatha Christie disappearance storyline felt so surreal and unreal and convenient and clean cut. But my issue is that's not what I'm here to read. I'm here to read a fictional reconstruction of what Agatha Christie may have experienced or gone through during her disappearance. I'm not here for this absolute mess of having to figure out if I even know what's going on or what actually happened. However, what the Christie affair does do well is building the worldview of its characters and in particular the class consciousness of its characters. And what I mean by that is Nan and Agatha are very clearly from different social classes and Nan is very, very conscious of it. It's constantly brought up and highlighted in the little details in this story, in the mentions of Agatha's manners and mannerisms and personality, and also in the way that Nan is very conscious of the way that she's presenting and the way that she's speaking. Appearance is also very important. There's this moment where Agatha is very conscious of the fact that she doesn't have any jewelry on and I just thought that was a really great detail. Obviously, this class consciousness is part of a broader conversation that this book is having with regard to class and in particular how class differences affect how much effort the police are willing to put in to assist victims of true crime, which is an important conversation. And overall, this shaping of worldview through class consciousness really helps these characters feel real and grounded in their particular time period. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up this discussion of the Christie affair by saying that I went a little hard on it, but it's not a bad book. That's not what I'm trying to say. Nan's past in particular was so interesting, and the mix of elements did make for an interesting reading experience. There was a definite sense that the author was kind of emulating classic Agatha Christie books, so I did enjoy that as well. Overall, it's not a staying up until 2am book because I didn't really feel that tension, the push and pull between the past and present storylines that would have kept me reading it. But again, I did like reading it. It just wasn't really what I had hoped slash expected it would be. Okay, so we've established that better historical fiction than the second Mrs. Astor builds the characters' worldviews and uses those worldviews to convey deeper themes. And in particular, when you're talking about historical characters, class consciousness is, in my opinion, a really important element to include because it would have been crucial 
in the lives of these characters. Which is why I find it so odd that in a story like The Second Mrs. Astor, which is about the marriage of one of the richest men in the world to an upper middle class socialite, class consciousness isn't really brought up except in the most shallow way imaginable of, oh, these people don't like me. And most importantly, this story doesn't know what it wants to say in regards to class. There is no cohesive message or commentary, and that in particular really signaled the end of my patience with this book. Let me give you what I think are two defining examples of what is so shallow and annoying about this book's take on class and class consciousness. First of all, there's this incredibly annoying through line where Madeline keeps insisting, and the narrative never contradicts this, she keeps insisting that she's this ordinary girl, and why would John Jacob Astor IV be interested in her? Okay, so obviously she is not on the same level as people like the Astors, the Vanderbilts, etc. But at the same time, Neither she nor the narrative ever acknowledge the immense privilege that she's born and raised with. Because she may not be insanely wealthy, but she is absolutely a rich and privileged person. For example, her family goes to Europe all the time. They have a summer house in this very ritzy area. Madeline has never had to once worry about money or her family's financial situation. The only thing she does day after day after day is to go to events and look pretty. That's it. And you cannot present this person to me and say, well, she's just an ordinary girl because she's clearly not. John Jacob Astor IV isn't stooping to marry some girl off the streets. He's just marrying someone in a slightly lower social class. And it's absolutely ridiculous when the narrative tries to paint it as something different. They lead essentially the same lives. I mean, the only difference is that John Jacob Astor IV leads a life that has bigger houses and more jewels, and that's pretty much it. And then secondly, we need to talk about the character of Vincent, John Jacob Astor IV's son. I hate what they do to Vincent in this book, and in particular, I hate it because of the class implications. So Vincent was a real person. He was the oldest son of John Jacob Astor IV. And what's interesting about him is that unlike his ancestors, unlike his father, he basically dedicated his life to being a philanthropist and using his family's insanely vast wealth to help other people. 
I read through his Wikipedia article and here are some really interesting quotes that I found in the philanthropy section of his article. Vincent Astor was, according to family biographer Derek Wilson, a hitherto unknown phenomenon in America, an Astor with a highly developed social conscience. He was 20 when his father died in the sinking of the ocean liner Titanic, and having inherited a massive fortune, he dropped out of Harvard University. He set out to change the family's image from that of miserly, aloof slum landlords who enjoyed the good life at the expense of others. Over time, he sold off the family's New York City slum housing and reinvested in reputable enterprises while spending a great deal of time and energy helping others. He was responsible for the construction of a large housing complex in the Bronx that included sufficient land for a large children's playground. And in Harlem, he transformed a valuable piece of real estate into another playground for children. Obviously, Vincent wasn't perfect. Upton Sinclair, who was a journalist famous for bringing attention to the exploitation of factory workers, had some beef with Vincent, which I'm sure was justified. I mean, just because a really rich person is philanthropic doesn't mean that they're necessarily good people or that they're doing anything to affect systemic change. However, I do think it's undeniable that Vincent is a better person than his father, John Jacob Astor IV. John Jacob Astor IV was not, as far as I can tell, into philanthropy of any kind. He was just a straight-up businessman whose sole goal seemed to be collecting wealth, mostly via real estate and building hotels, and also being a slum landlord, apparently. And all of this context is why it's so strange to me that Vincent is basically the bad guy in the second Mrs. Astor. He's so mean to Madeline. He has serious anger issues. I was waiting for him to get violent at any moment. And overall, he's just depicted as a terrible person, whereas John Jacob Astor IV is depicted like a god, like the best, most amazing man to ever exist. And isn't that interesting? Don't you find that a little bit strange? I honestly thought that Vincent was going to get a character arc of some kind that leads to him developing into this great philanthropist, but expecting character arcs from this book was definitely a bad idea and a doomed idea. Vincent is basically the same guy at the end of the book, and I hate, hate, hate this depiction of him because of class and class consciousness and how this depiction is just sending really weird and unfortunate messages that are directly contradictory 
to the other through line of, hey, you know, it's unfair that Madeline was treated this way because of her class. So, yeah, on top of everything else, this book is as shallow as the cheesy Regency romances that I read too much of. But at least Regency romances are usually fun to read. This book, The Second Mrs. Astor, was such a drag because the characters were lacking, there was basically no plot, and there weren't even any cohesive themes that this story was trying to explore. Obviously, the second Mrs. Astor is not a staying up until 2am book, and I pity anyone who goes into it with the same expectations and excitement that I had before this book wore me down to the point where I had no choice but to make this episode. Okay, so I do overall love historical fiction books that recreate the lives of real women, but the three books that I went over today accomplished that task with some mixed results. I'll still obviously be reading these types of books in the future and hopefully they'll be more like The Diamond Eye and a lot less like The Second Mrs. Astor. If you have any recommendations for these types of books, feel free to let me know. Alright, so that's everything for this episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, I hope you have a great week, and happy book travels! Uh-huh.